what was it, 28 through 31? Yes. Earlier in that same chapter, Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We want revival, and if you want revival, unless it is grounded in the word of God and lived out in obedience to the faith, it ain't going to happen. And so we come to the word of God again tonight. Before we do that, let's pray. Father, I thank you for another chance to open your word to your people. And since we learn in your word that we cannot truly understand it except by the Holy Spirit, that these things are spiritually attained, spiritually discerned, I'm praying that you might grant us the grace that is your spirit teaching us and changing us that we might glorify you. Young and old, I pray you'll work in our hearts tonight that we might be changed by the life-giving, revival-bringing gospel of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I ask you once again to turn with me to Luke 15. Our text is verses 11 through 32. It's great to be back with you tonight. It's especially good to see more students here tonight. And I want to start just off by talking to you guys for a minute, and you gals, because I'm glad you're here. It is important that you are here. You go to school each week. You go to school five days a week, and you spend from, what, 8 o'clock to 3 o'clock, roughly, wherever your school starts. That's a lot of time each week to learn things like grammar, things like math, literature, history, science, P.E., And now you're here. Those things are important. Homework is important. Those tests you have to study for are important. But there's something more important. A lot of times we put so much stock in our children's educations, what kind of GPA they're going to have, what kind of college they're going to go to, and that's all well and good, and it's very important, but what the Word of God says is monumentally more important. And you've got youth group, and you've got Sundays, and you've got services, and you've got a great pastor in Scott, and and you've got great teachers. I've enjoyed getting to know more and more of the people here at Red Branch over the past few days, starting with a, a prayer meeting we had last Thursday. Everything pales in comparison to the Word of God. Jesus Himself, when He was faced with temptations... And you guys are faced with temptations all the time. Jesus Himself answered Satan Himself with the Word of God three times. And the one that always sticks out to me the most is, Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It is only what God says that is of eternal consequence. The Panthers' record is not of eternal consequence. And I know we're all thankful for that this year. Your GPA, uh, what you're doing this weekend, pales in comparison to the Word of God. And we are in a passage that includes a famine. And there is a famine of knowledge when it comes to the Word of God today, not just in our schools and not just in our homes, but even in our churches. And it's nowhere clearer seen than in people your age. And so I 
ask you tonight to give heed to what I have to say, not because it's me, but because God's speaking. And guess what? Each one of you is just as accountable as any 50-year-old deacon in this church or 80-year-old Sunday school teacher or who's prayed for you. Every single one of us is accountable before God. And we're going to have to answer to Him. So if you want to live for Christ, if you want revival in your life, and if you want revival in your family, and if you want revival in your school, if you want revival in your church, God is not dead. And He brings people to life through His Word. Luke 15, 11-32. And he said, and Jesus is the one speaking, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of, his, one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and will say to him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, To his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, For so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. This is an 
night four of this, right? This is such a compelling passage. There's so much to it, and so far we've seen three big ideas. Three nights, three big ideas. And the first idea we saw on Sunday night, and this is especially fruitful for those of you who are are here for the first time this week tonight, we saw there what a sinner looks like. We saw what a sinner looks like. The younger son did something that was absolutely despicable. He, he, he shamefully demanded his share of the estate while his father was still alive. He was all about himself. He, he took off to a distant land because he wanted to get as far away from his father as he could get. And when he got there, he wasted everything on immoral living. So when a famine came and he was about to starve to death, he does what we all try to do a lot of times, and that's try to fix things ourselves. He defiled himself. He was a Jewish man handling and feeding pigs. That's a, that, that makes you unclean. That, that's absolutely disgusting to Jewish sensibilities. He, he made himself even more compl- uh, unclean than he already was before God. He had completely rejected his father for greener pastures only to live a shipwrecked life. The prodigal son is what a sinner looks like. Well, Monday night we saw what repentance looks like. What does it look like to agree with God about who you are? What does it look like to turn away from your previous course of life and move to the Lord? We see this picture in the prodigal because what we see in verse 17 is he came to his senses. He realized his father was really a generous, gracious man who made sure that even his hired day laborers, the people who worked for him every day, he made sure they had more than enough bread to eat. They they never starved, but here he was starving. So he determined... I'm going to go back and basically beg my father. There's no way he'll accept me back as a son, but I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to just beg that I can be one of them, one of those day laborers, because then at least I'll live. He was humbled. And his humiliation drove him to action, back toward the father. A change of heart reflected in action. That's what repentance looks like. Well, finally, last night we saw what forgiveness looks like. Because there was no reason in the world for the father to take back his son, even as a hired man. No reason at all for the father to show this thankless, ingrate, self-centered, rebellious son any grace. No reason to show him any mercy. And yet before his son could even make it to him, the father, as soon as he saw him in the distance, ran to his son. He took up his robe and basically bore in himself the shame of the son so that the son would not be shamed anymore. Make me as one of your hired men. The prodigal couldn't even get that out of his mouth before the father said, Put the best robe, which would have been his own robe, put that robe, put my robe on him. Clothe him with my righteousness. He's dirty, make him clean. Cover him with my clean, precious robe. And that's what God does. He clothes 
the repenting sinner in the righteousness of Christ. He ends our shame to bring us into the party, into the celebration, into His presence. That is forgiveness. That's what forgiveness looks like. And the grumbling scribes and Pharisees hearing Jesus tell this story would have been aghast at this. You see that the religious people of Israel fancied themselves honorable. They thought themselves righteous. They thanked God that they weren't like other people. They couldn't comprehend how or why Jesus would spend time with scum, with unrighteous, with with tax collectors and sinners from verse 1. So Jesus gave them this parable, but their eyes had to be rolling. Because not only was the prodigal son shameful, now the father was shameful in their eyes because he had taken his son back. They wanted to hear how the father was going to put his son in his place. They wanted to hear how the father was going to humiliate the son and punish the son, and they got forgiveness instead. And that did not compute with the scribes and Pharisees. The religious establishment of Israel, they were about doing. They were about Duty. They were about looking the part of the holy and had no concept of grace, no place for mercy, even though if you go back and you look at the Old Testament, all of the sacrifices, all of the cleansings ultimately point to their sin and God removing that sin. But to them, they were just religious exercises. It was stuff you did so that you were who you thought you were right before God and and people. And they had company in this parable. As the son once dead has been brought to life again, the lost son has been found, the party is on. Verse 25, we're introduced to the older son, the older brother out in the field. And what is he doing? He's doing his duty. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. He is a nobleman's son, so obviously there's probably not manual labor involved in what he's doing, but he's, he's doing what he's doing. He's being the boss. He's making sure that all of the hired men are doing exactly what they are supposed to do so that he can prosper. He's out in the field. And now finally, here is somebody that the scribes and Pharisees can identify with. The older son was not wasteful. The older son did not go out and waste his life with immoral living. Loose living as as we read it put. He didn't make himself unclean like a Gentile. And he wasn't like the father shaming himself by taking the younger son back. No, this older brother, he was the good son. He was the one who looked the part. He was the one who did his duty, who did what he was supposed to do. He stayed in his father's house. He did the things you're supposed to do in society. All that is proper to gain wealth, to to have prestige, and to be affirmed by others. The scribes and Pharisees could really identify with him because he reminded them of themselves. They did their duty. They did the things you were supposed to do as a good Jew. They maintained a good standing in the community. They maintained a good standing in the synagogues. They looked the part of the religious. They did the things that religious people are supposed to do. 
But isn't it interesting that in this story, the father did not tell the older son what was going on. The father didn't go out to him and say, guess what? Your brother has come home. Your brother is back. He's home and we are celebrating. Come join us. He didn't let this older son know what was going on. After all, this was a family celebration. This was a community celebration. Everybody was partying, but the father didn't bother to tell the older son. And why? Well, the answer is woven behind the scenes through the story as it unfolds. But let me tell you what the reason is. The father didn't tell the older son because they didn't have a real relationship. They did not have a real relationship. The older son had shown no interest earlier in his younger brother. At no point in this story does Jesus even hint that the older brother, the responsible one, went to his little brother to say, You are ruining your life. Wake up! You are ruining your life and worse, you're dishonoring our Father. My Father. You're bringing shame upon yourself and Him and our family. Please stop. Please straighten up. Please live with honor. At no point does the older son, the older brother do that. He just sits idle while his younger brother shames himself, shames their father. He shows no concern. He apparently had nothing to do with his younger brother and no real relationship with his father either. Because if there had been real love for his father, he would have stepped in. If he had real concern for his father, he would have sought to intervene. He would have at least tried. But no, instead, when his brother demanded his share of the estate, the older son is fine getting his double portion of that estate. His father's honor does not seem to have even been a secondary concern. So no, there's no relationship and he's out in the field doing his thing. He's not near his father, which may be some symbolism there. But no affection at all. No real desire to honor his father either. And as the day was ending, he comes back toward the house and he hears music and he hears dancing. And it's news to him because obviously there's a party going on. And it's the kind of party that it would have taken some time to plan. But here it is all of a sudden, and I've not been told about it. No one told me about it. He was not in on the plans, which probably he felt insulted by. And by the way, the scribes and Pharisees probably would have agreed at him feeling insulted because after all, this is his portion of the estate being used for this party. And it's in full swing by the time he gets near the house. Now the thing you would expect to read next would be for the older son to go into the party, find his father, and ask him, what is this all about? If he had any concern for his father, he would have done just that. Then his father could have told him firsthand about his brother coming home. And you would expect joy. Joy at the restoration of a brother. Joy at the return of one who was supposed you, you, you were supposed to love. He's your brother. 
There should have been tears of joy because the older brother would have known how much this meant to his father. How much his father's heart had ached when his younger son did what he did and left. But instead, his concern is not for whatever is going on with his father. His concern is for himself. His concern is for his property. His concern is for his reputation. And he asked the servant, what's going on? And in verse 27 we see, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But there's no rejoicing from the older son. When he heard the words, Your brother has come, that should have been enough for him to immediately dash into the party. Leave the servant behind. Dash into the party to see for yourself. And that's not what he did because that's not how he felt. This was not good news to him. He's thinking, my father did what? He killed the fattened calf to celebrate my brother's return? You mean he accepted him back? This was insulting. That's how he was taking this news. And the worst part of it all was he received him back safe and sound. This man received sinners. That's why the scribes and Pharisees were grumbling. Verse 2. If you go back to verse 2. And that's what caused Jesus to tell these parables in the first place. And the older brother, the, 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 the one the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious establishment identified with, he was hearing that his father was shaming himself by receiving him back safe and sound. Now that's an English phrase. If we get into the Greek, the, the, you know, this was originally written in Greek. Luke was. And the word there, the Greek word used there that we translate safe and sound, it means whole. Complete. He received him back wholly, completely. This son who had taken his share of the estate, gone off, squandered it, came back empty-handed, now he's back, he's using family resources, and his father receives him back wholly as a real son, not as a hired man, as a real son, as a complete son. And they're celebrating. And what the older son is missing is that while everyone at the party is celebrating because the son has returned, the party is really about the grace and the mercy and the compassion and the love of the Father. It's really not about the Son as much as it is what the Father has done. Grace in that He's giving His prodigal Son what He does not deserve. Mercy in that He's not punishing the prodigal like He does deserve. Compassion in that all of this is coming from the very core of His being. That's how much He loves His Son. And the fact He is receiving Him, the fact He has received Him back, shows the permanence, the unchangingness, the deep, deep love this Father has for His Son. And the older Son can't stand it. 
It's unthinkable for his father to do this. And the scribes and Pharisees listening to Jesus share that opinion of the older brother, by the way. They can't believe Jesus is saying anymore about this. The older brother won't go into the party. There's no way I'm going to shame myself. There's no way I'm going to embarrass myself the way my father took on this shame. There's no way I'm going to strip myself of my dignity. He became angry, Jesus says, and was not willing to go in. Jesus receives sinners. Jesus eats with sinners and scribes and Pharisees grumble. That's absolutely what this is a picture of, friends. These religious people cannot fathom how God would or could take joy in saving profligate, immoral, rebellious people. They can't fathom the joy in heaven that Jesus speaks of when even one of these scum repents. Like the older brother, they are obstinate, they are indignant, they are going to stand on the outside grumbling at the Father's act of grace. Friends, this is what hypocrites do. The older son on the outside looked like he loved, looked like he respected looked like he honored his father. But when it came time for his father to receive a sinner, even his own brother, his true heart was revealed. His anger, his inner enmity for his father was revealed. His self-righteousness was revealed. Just like ours is whenever we talk about revival, as long as we don't have to do anything extra to bring it about. Or we talk about how much we love the Lord and how much we want to see the church thrive, but we never open His Word. Or when we talk about how much we are, you know, we're quick to sing Christian music, we're quick to raise our hands, but when we leave, so does that love and feeling. That's when our self righteousness is revealed, friends when we talk of reaching others with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but are more content to stand on the outside so that we don't have to deal with people we don't want to deal with. That's self-righteousness. This is what self-righteousness looks like. It's moral. It looks faithful. It looks like belief. It speaks about God. It uses religious language. But that's all things people can see. It sins in socially acceptable ways. It sins in secret. And sometimes those sins seep out because the body, notably the mouth, cannot contain them. But on the inside, the self-righteous are not about the fruit of the Spirit. They are not about... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Against which there is no law. No self-righteousness has the deeds of the flesh in mind. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Just a couple verses before. Particularly the inward sins, enmities, strife, 
jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, and things like these. That's not a complete list. Things like these. And one of two things happens. Either self-righteousness comes to its senses and repents, or it sees the grace of God, and it reads the words of God, and it pays lip service to God, and it inwardly sees. On the outside, the self-righteous, they look like they've got it all together. But on the inside, along with the anger, there is a lack of fulfillment. There's unhappiness. The self-righteous feel the need to be affirmed. They feel the need to be praised. They feel the need to be vindicated. The self-righteous need sometimes to be in control. The self-righteous need to, be a, a, to, to feel accepted. They, they, sometimes they need to be able to dictate terms. The self-righteous need to be superior to those they decide are inferior so that they don't feel the need to repent. It's much easier to look holy and go to church and walk an aisle than it is to take up your cross daily. And that's what the older son was doing. Seething in his heart. How dare his father do this? He's not going to go in to the father. So his father... Look, his father came to him. You see it on the screen. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. And implied in the pleading is a call to love. And a call to show grace. A call to forgive. Just as He, the Father, had forgiven. A call to celebrate the restoration of a sinner. A call to celebrate the finding of the lost. A call to celebrate the raising of the dead. And how does the older son respond to the Father's pleading? Well, God willing, that's what we'll see tomorrow night. Please be here tomorrow night. Make plans now. Because you don't want to miss how this wraps up. But even tonight, friends, the question must be considered before you walk out those doors. You need to consider the question. We've seen what a sinner looks like. We've seen what repentance looks like. Students, do you know what forgiveness looks like? And actually, we, now, now, now that we've covered this part of the parable, we've seen what two kinds of sinner looks like. Because truth be told, most of the first kind of sinner don't walk through these doors. Most of the first kind of sinner attached to the world don't usually come through the doors of a church. Most who fall into that tax collector and sinner category They're not religious as much as they're irreligious. And students, that includes most of your classmates. But inside the meeting places of the church, notice the meeting place of the church, not the church. We are much more likely in the meeting place of the church to come in contact with older brothers. 
that other type of sinner, the self-righteous, the kind who quench revival. Tonight we've seen what self-righteousness looks like and the question to consider is whether you look like that. Remember who Jesus was saying all this to? The people who in the 21st century in America would pick up their Bible, get in their car on a Sunday morning and be there for Sunday school and service. The kind who might even show up for Wednesday night when it's not a revival. The kind you would think have it all together. The religious people. The people who appear to be holy. Except in Jesus' case, the vast majority of them had not come to their senses. The vast majority of them had not come to the knowledge of the truth. The, 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 The knowledge of the truth by which we escape the snare of the devil. And tonight, quite frankly, friends, I suspect a sad, substantial majority of our churches, a substantial majority of those even on Southern Baptist Church rolls, a substantial majority of our youth groups fall into that category. They, in the words of Paul in Romans 10.3, listen to this, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul wrote that about Israel. Tonight, you don't get to determine what you can and can't believe. You don't get to decide what you will or won't obey. You don't get to choose which commands you will accept. You don't get to determine which parts of the Bible you want to like and which parts of the Bible you are willing to put on the back burner. Either Jesus is your Lord or He is not your Lord. And there is no middle way. There's an old movie, and gosh, I hate to bring this up now. I've got some people from my church here who, who know I even use this illustration Sunday morning. Karate Kid, 1984 movie. Daniel LaRusso could not learn karate until he agreed with Mr. Miyagi to do whatever Mr. Miyagi said. Because if you try to learn karate, you go down the street, you're one side of the street, you're okay. You go down the other side of the street, you're okay. But if you try to live as a Christian and try to find some middle way, sooner or later, squash. Just like grape. Either Jesus is your Lord or He is not. And for the scribes and Pharisees who appeared righteous, they were all down that middle of the road. They were the older brother ultimately refusing to come in. Friends, I'm about to wrap up. I appreciate your patience tonight. The only way you can come is by Jesus Christ. Rather you are a senior citizen here tonight, or rather you are an elementary school student, or maybe even a preschool student, I don't even know. And anywhere in between, rich or old, male or female, young or old, 
The only way you can be saved is by the one who receives sinners. You won't come to God by doing your duty. You won't come to God by being in church. You won't come to God by merely being in proximity to Him. The older brother was in proximity to the father. But there was no real relationship. Do you tonight have a real relationship with Jesus Christ? Or do you just look the part and carry your Bible and go to youth group and go to Sunday school and think you can get by and you think God will be okay with that? Establishing a righteousness of your own. Come to your senses. Come to your senses. And return as the prodigal did. In humility, recognizing I'm helpless, I'm hopeless, I'm unworthy, but I've got to entrust myself to the mercy and grace of the Father. And in our case, it's through His Son, Jesus Christ. Come to Him. Come in to the celebration tonight. Come to where there is joy in heaven. Come repenting and the Father will forgive. Let's pray. Father, You sent Your Son to die on the cross that sinners would be forgiven. You raised Your Son from the dead that all who repent and trust in Him might not perish, might not spend eternity in the lake of fire being punished for their sins, but instead be giving everlasting life. Father, it's absolutely unconscionable that anyone would rebel against You when You are so loving and so gracious. It's unbelievable also that You would save anyone who has the audacity to do that. And yet, Your mercy endures forever. You want us to come to You. You bid us to come to You. So Father, tonight I pray that the self-righteous would be crushed in their pride. That you'd leave the self-righteous with no choice but to turn from their sins and come to repentance by your Son. By your word of truth, Father, may your people be driven to a new sense of humility. That we might trust you more and that by your grace, we might follow Jesus Christ with obedient faith. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.